So we are moving into chapter 26 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and it has to do with the church. So I thought it would be appropriate to start our time this morning reflecting upon the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to read from Colossians chapter 1 and and focus our attention, our minds and hearts on the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Come on in. Father, we are very thankful for this day to gather as your people. Father, we're thankful to be able to uh, spend time digging into your word and being reminded of the great hope and joy we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. What a beautiful unpacking of the glory that is due you, Father, for the work that you have accomplished through your Son. And Father, we pray that as we study from your word, specifically about the church that you have instituted, our hearts would grow in love towards one another as we recognize that by grace, through faith in Christ, we, we get to experience being part of the household of faith. Father, it should, it should um, build up in us overflowing joy and praise. It should lead to doxology this morning as we think about where we were dead in our trespasses and sins and where we are now alive in Christ because of our Savior. Father, be with us this morning. We pray that you would be honored in this time in Sunday school. We, we thank you for all of the teachers in every age group. We pray your blessing upon the proclamation of your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've got handouts over here. I wish I had more pens to hand out to everybody, but I don't, so maybe you can ask around and see if, if others have pens that you can borrow to fill in the blanks. In order to preserve my voice, which is strained this morning, I want to invite some class participation. Um, we are going to look at, if, you, if you've opened up the confession, you probably have noticed that there are a lot of paragraphs in chapter 26. We are, we are looking at the first four this morning, and really you can could, you could identify the first four under a large heading, the universal church. 
And then the, the rest of the paragraphs really start to hone in on the, the local expression of the bride of Christ. What does it look like on the ground, a, a gathered group of individuals in a, in a unique location? Uh, we'll have much time, Lord willing, <coughs> next Sunday to dig into those paragraphs. Uh, but this Sunday, we're, we're kind of we're starting to, to look at uh, what God has established by saving a people for himself. And so I want to invite someone to read paragraph one for us. And then we'll spend some time looking at that paragraph. We'll do that through uh, paragraphs two, three, and four as well. So a volunteer to read, please. All right, Justin. so much. Okay, now one of the first words that pops out, if it didn't have this clarification, would lead many astray and confused uh, when it begins with the Catholic, lowercase c, or universal church. Catholic just meaning universal. So don't be thrown off by that. The, The confession helps us clarify that they're just referring to the universal church, meaning all of God's people that have been saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. Uh, And so there are some important words in this paragraph that I think by defining will help us understand what is trying to be conveyed here biblically. The church is the climactic earthly expression of the peoples of God. Language is used uh, which equates the church with, with all of those who are in union with Christ. The church is the body and bride of Christ. And just to, you you see several passages of scripture right under the paragraph. And it's so helpful in this confession to just spend time going to those passages and seeing where these truths are anchored. This is not, this is not just the thoughts of man, but rooted and established from God's word. I want us to, to open up to Ephesians chapter five and uh, just look at a few verses that are listed there. So if I can, again, have a volunteer, Ephesians 5 and three verses we're looking at, 23, 27, and 32, if someone would be willing willing to read those for us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, what I thought would be helpful is to actually use a creed. Uh, It's the Nicene Constantinople Creed of 381 to help us look and kind of unpack this first paragraph. So that creed uh, that was confessed by the early church confesses belief in one holy Catholic, lowercase c, again, universal, 
apostolic church. And so what I want to do is just kind of break, break down each of those and let that kind of be what's guiding us in understanding this idea of, of God's universal church. So you could say these are four adjectives uh, that have been used historically to summarize what the Bible teaches about the church. So one holy, universal, apostolic. So first, one, the church is one and is to be one because God is one. Now, we've got a powwow in the back, and I don't want to have to get on to everybody back there, the students, but you guys need help with anything? Okay, thank you. You're not getting, you're not getting picked on by the teacher. I, I just want you to be able to hear me and, and engage with the lesson for sure. Um, so we're looking at the first one. God is one, therefore the church is one. Christians have always been characterized by their unity. So Acts chapter 4, very helpful in understanding that this is a united group of people because they're united to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. That's Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6. And really, this is Paul uh, teaching that really reflects Christ's own teaching that if you're working through the Gospels, particularly in, in John's Gospel, he's got a, a road baby over here. Sweet little thing. Thank you, Dennis. We got baby showers, we got babies crying. It's just amazing. Adult Sunday school. <laughs> Who would have thought? I actually contemplated teaching from this like lounge chair over here to see if that would really throw you guys for a loop. What a day. Um, what Paul is teaching is what Christ also taught in the Gospels. So when you look at John's Gospel in particular, there is this emphasis of there being just one flock. One flock. Not multiple flocks, but Christ is the head of the church, the, the shepherd of the flock, all those who would believe in him. Now, some may be going, okay, I'm scratching my head a little bit here because as I look around, I don't see that as the landscape of the evangelical church. And we'll get there. But this is um, a truth that is, that, is, that is beyond what you may see with your eyes if you've experienced maybe in some local expressions of the bride um, a lack of this unity or oneness. So though it is regrettable that the church as a visible body is currently far from this unified that we're, we're hearing from God's word, we do recognize that Christians share a profound invisible unity in Christ when they hold the faith once delivered to the saints. So all who believe in the gospel are one in Christ Jesus the Lord. So that's the first one, one. The second, holy. The church is holy and is to be holy because God is holy. I want us to flip to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a, a little bit longer, a little bit of a longer passage, but um, I think it's really helpful. 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 4 through 16. Maybe get a volunteer to read 4 through 10 and someone else to read 11 through 16. Is that possible? Do I have a 4 through 10? Larry, 11 through 16? Titus, perfect. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaithful, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to reveal in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by power, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your soul. Go ahead. You can just pick up at 10, please. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he was, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look upon. I'll just pick it up from 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Thank you all for, for helping with the reading. So I may have jumped in a little too quick. Did you all get the blanks on the, the first part? We've got God is one, unity, and truth. Did you all get that under the, the one category, number one? Under holy, the church is holy and is to be holy because God is holy. Then we also see the holiness of the church described both uh, describes both God's declaration, God's declaration concerning his people, and then the second blank you've got there, the Spirit's progressive work. So the holiness of the church describes both God's declaration concerning his people and the Spirit's progressive work. Okay, so we're still looking at the church's holy. Looking at the Greek word that we translate into English as church, this will actually help us understand what the holiness of the church really means. So ekklesia is the word for church used in the New Testament, and it literally means the called out ones who assemble or gather, the called out. If you just think about that for a moment, we 
are the ones who have been plucked out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. So when you start to think about the church universal as holy, it's only because of God's work in a sinner's life that any of us could be recognized as set apart or uh, called out ones that assemble together. So the church's holiness lies in its being separated, that's the next blank, separated from the world, called by God to be unique, set-apart people whose sole vocation is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the chief end of man. Our Creator has made the church uncommon, a body set apart to live differently in the world. So we've looked at the church being one, the church being holy, and then thirdly, the church being universal. Now, just thinking for a moment about, again, people struggling with looking around and seeing maybe a lack of holiness. John Calvin helps us here before we look at the church universal. He says this. um, He helps us understand that in the present age, the church will never attain ethical holiness perfectly. The Lord is daily at work in smoothing out wrinkles, he says, and cleansing spots. From this, it follows that the church's holiness is not yet complete. The church is holy then in the sense that it is daily advancing and is not yet perfect. So we begin to think about the sanctifying work that is progressive in the life of God's people. And we will see in the, the consummation of all things that holiness come to uh, completion. Okay, so thirdly, universal. The church is universal, and it is to be universal because God is the Lord, first blank, of all the earth, and king, the second blank, king of the ages. So God is the Lord over all the earth and king of the ages. It is universal then in that it stretches across space and time. So when you think about the church being universal, we literally are talking about all peoples who have trusted in the Messiah, who have had faith in God. They are the ones who are part of the household of faith. So when we talk universal, it's much more than we can see now, but we We see the records in God's inspired word, and we, Lord willing, will see many more come to saving faith in Christ. And so it stretches across space and time. The church universal consists of all elect Christians everywhere and at all times. Those two blanks. Everywhere and at all times. We love seeing passages like Revelations 5-9. Every tongue, tribe, and nation will be represented in the people of God. So all believers throughout history make up the bride of Christ. And uh, that key word invisible is um, in the confession, and it's to help us really start to understand what what is being described here as the the universal church. Um, With the help of uh, A.A. Hodge, you'll see the, the, the footnote there. He does a good job of explaining the invisible kind of quality of the universal church. It is invisible because we cannot directly see the work of the spirit 
which joins a person to Christ. It is invisible because we cannot perfectly judge the truth of another person's grace. It is invisible because the church as a whole is not yet perfected. It's not yet a perfected earthly reality. Visible churches are the only imperfect and partial manifestation of it. I hope that's, that's making sense as we're looking at what the, the creed was confessing, one holy, universal, and lastly, apostolic church. Apostolic is the fourth that we're looking at. The church is apostolic because it is founded on, the first blank, founded on and is faithful to the word of God. Now, this is where the word apostolic comes from. It comes from God calling out his apostles. So faithful to the word of God given through the apostles. This is, this is what grounds the, the universal church. We're, we're, we're not standing on doctrines that, that we've created, but inspired word of God given through the, the apostles. And so this is really important to the confession, as we'll see in later paragraphs. Uh, apostolic succession is a big deal. Uh, wh what exactly are we talking about there? Who has authority? So from the apostles, there have been a succession of apostolic teaching based on the word of God. Edmund Clowney helps us here. He, wrote, he once wrote, to compromise the authority of scripture is to destroy the apostolic foundation of the church. And so when we talk about this, this creed that confesses um, this one uh, holy, universal, apostolic church, it must be grounded upon the word of God. Did everybody get the blanks there that we had so far? Founded on, faithful to. Anybody missing anything from the first page? Man, you guys are wonderful students. Okay, so that is a little bit of paragraph one. There's much more, I'm sure, that could be hit on, but in order to get through all four, which we're striving to do, and quickly running out of time, we're going to keep moving. Paragraph two. Can I have a volunteer to read paragraph two? Paragraph two from the Confession. All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, diverting the foundation or holiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints, and of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. Okay. Sometimes the wording of the confession can be hard to understand. But really, as we're talking about the universal church, I've already made note of it, but J John Murray writes it like this. There is no evidence for the notion of the church as an invisible entity distinct from the church visible. So paragraph two is basically saying the way in which we see the fruit of the invisible church is actually seeing the visible church. And so we want to look at what I think John Murray's trying to say, uh, that really there's no evidence for the notion of this church universal if we don't see a visible expression of it. 
Um, again, the word ecclesia appears 115 times in the New Testament, and most of those occurrences do not, in fact, refer to the universal church, but to a local church or churches. So you've got two blanks there, local and visible. Those two words are very important in us even beginning to really understand the reality of a universal church, local and visible. The church local is a particular group of Christians who gather, who assemble together. Sam Waldron notes, one may not credibly profess to be a member of the universal church while despising or even not willing to acknowledge membership or fellowship in the visible church. So the second paragraph is to help believers understand that this, this reality of a universal church can never be disconnected from the truth of the visible expression of it. So uh, Kevin DeYoung, I'm going to probably mess this up a little bit, but he coined uh, this phrase of, or this idea of uh, Christians buying into really a heretical teaching that you can somehow be part of Christ, have the head, but having that be decapitated from the body. So I don't know if you've interacted with professing believers who say, I, I, I'm good with Jesus, but I want nothing to do with the church. And he, he's basically denouncing this idea of a decapitated Christianity. You, you, you can't function like that biblically. You can't say, I've got Christ as the head. He's my savior, but I don't actually want to be part of his body. That actually does not align with scripture. It doesn't make sense. There's not a category for that. And so the confession is saying, yes, we affirm the universal church. All those who have ever had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the assembled throng that will one day stand before the throne. And at the same time, that reality is only made visible in our local identity with a congregation, with the, the bride, the, the visible expression of uh, the saints. So you see that may be called visible saints. Okay, another thing that I think paragraph two is doing is helping us understand that, that this visible church or visible expression of the saints is grounded upon a firm foundation. So all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it and not destroying their own profession by any errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation. So what they believe and their conduct, as long as it is anchored on truth, they are the visible saints. And so I wanted to spend just a moment in your handout. You see a firm foundation is, is a blank there, built on a firm foundation. We're going to look at this a little bit more in later paragraphs, but this description by David Bevington I think is actually really helpful if even you one day will need to go from this place and seek out another local church. We, we try to stand for biblical truth and, and really this being a, an expression of, the, of a pillar and buttress of truth, this, this local church. And what David Bevington does here, it's referred to as the quadra, quadrilateral uh, expression or definition of an evangelical church. Basically, big words, this is a healthy biblical kind of marks of a healthy church or marks of what a biblical church should look like. 
a, a visible uh, description of, of a, a, a saint that's gathering in a church? What would you hold to? And so he, he lays out um, four marks, you could say. The first, and I, and I think these are, these are helpful, Biblicism. Now, don't worry so much about the word Biblicism, but it's a, it's, it's a church that has a high view of Scripture, that, that it, that's going to actually stand on the Word of God and say that it is sufficient for both life and godliness. It's not going to need to bring in tradition and hold it at the same level, but it's firmly sola scriptura. And then we also have uh, the second there, crucicentrism. Again, don't, don't get thrown off by big words, but I think what it represents is, it very, is very important. A focus on Christ's atoning death on the cross. So you're holding scripture as the inspired word of God, and you are looking at and holding to a, a high view of the atoning death of Christ. That, that's hugely important for us to actually be marked as a visible saint that's holding to truth. And then next, conversionism. Now, you may de- define this differently, but the way he defines it, I think, gives a healthy mark. A focus on the new birth and belief that sinful human beings must be converted. So when we say we're Reformed Baptists, when we say we're Baptists, what we're trying to emphasize there is the gathering of the saints is not just people who want to gather together by name only, but actually those who've experienced the new birth, have, have repented of their sins and believe upon Christ, received him by faith. So it is a group of believers gathering. That emphasis is really important. So there's a strong sense of conversionism when we talk about marks of a, of a, of a vis, visible church. And then lastly, activism. Again, you may define that word differently, but the way he does is really helpful. Activism means we're actually living out our faith. The living out of the gospel in works, both in word and deed. So we profess Christ as king, and we submit to him as king. We actually, we're actually ones that he would say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We are people who seek to obey our Savior. So I hope that's, that's somewhat helpful, built on a firm foundation. And I went ahead and I just filled those blanks in for you because to spell that would just be a not-so-fun exercise. Okay, paragraph three. Paragraph three. Anybody volunteering to read paragraph three? Charlie. I had a lot of volunteers. We've got another paragraph. Thank you. The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always has had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world. To the end thereof, such as believe in him and make profession of his name. Maybe I'll try this exercise real quick. After hearing that paragraph, what do you think it's conveying? What do you think paragraph three is trying to say? Thank you for reading, Charlie. Churches fall away from from, uh, the written God. That is true. And it is saying that. 
And there's a big, there's a big but. In the midst of that, Emma, what, what do you think it's saying? Uh, I thought it was saying that, like, even though some local or visible churches might um, fall away, like, the persistence of the universal church continues. Very good. Spot on. Yes. So remember, this is, we're talking about the universal church. And what this confession is trying to testify and help us understand is that even though you may see visible expressions of the bride of Christ go off the rails, maybe even teach heretical teaching, uh, disband and close down, whatever that may be, the reality is God will preserve his church. Emma said it better than I just did. Uh, God will continue to build his church. So if someone has uh, their Bibles open, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. That's another good point. Yeah. It will, it will, Ted, Ted was saying it will not hinder the church. God will still be able to fulfill his purposes in the midst of maybe some uh, professing congregations going, going off. Uh, so Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you, and I tell, I, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank you, Justin. So, on your handout, you've got the perpetuity of the church, the indestructibility of the universal church is should bring much hope um, and encouragement to the saints, even if you have maybe personally gone through some very difficult experiences within the visible church, uh, that God is going to fulfill his purposes and continue to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Yeah. Okay. Um, so paragraph three, that, that's uh, the, the main thrust of that paragraph. And because there's a lot of content in paragraph four, I just want to have you fill in the blank there. Um, Here's the promise. Christ will continue uh, to build his church. Pretty easy there. And just want to encourage you guys to look at those scripture references um, in your own study. And I pray find encouragement there. Okay, paragraph four. The Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father... All power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome, in any sense of head thereof, but is Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalts himself and the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Thank you, Jason. So um, the writers of this confession get pretty worked up uh, over the Pope. And uh, this is where, if you've studied confessions, um, context really does help shed light on why they would go here at this particular time. Um, And rather than majoring on, I think, that minor, the, the... the major thrust or uh, point of this particular paragraph as we're thinking about the universal church is really to identify where the authority lies. That's, 
That's the main emphasis in this paragraph. Who has the authority when we speak of the universal church? And so the point of this paragraph is that the Lord Jesus is the head and has all authority of the universal church. All authority. The Father appointed Jesus as the head of the church, as we heard from Colossians chapter 1. I think it's really good for us to read a familiar passage. Uh, The Great Commission helps really frame well what I think this paragraph is, is trying to communicate. So if you've got your Bibles open, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I'm going to ask Abby to read because she has tried to volunteer multiple times. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very good. Thank you. Main thing that I want you to hear from that and see from that is the authority given to Christ. That is, that's the anchor in which to understand, okay, as we think about the universal church, Uh, All peoples who have believed upon Christ in saving faith, they are led, instructed by the head of the church, which is Christ. All power for the calling, institution, order of government, in all sovereign manners, it's all given to Christ. And what they were dealing with in that day is that uh, the Roman Catholic Church, so where we were seeing Catholic lowercase c, the Roman Catholic Church wanted to make that an uppercase c and give all authority to the what they would believe the apostolic succession, which would be the Pope. So they would interpret Scripture saying this was actually that authority that we're reading that was first given to Christ. He has then entrusted, given to the Pope. And so you'll see uh, what I want to try to make as clear as possible. Number two there, the Holy Spirit is the vicar representative of Christ, not the Pope. Uh, Regardless of where you want to take their interpretation of the Antichrist or an Antichrist, um, I I put a little paragraph in there from Sam Waldron from his exposition of the 1689 that I think is helpful. We'll read it in just a second. But the main... The main thrust here that I want us to see, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds, the main thrust is to see that the Holy Spirit is the representative of Christ, and we're going to see that, that how that outworks, the outworking of that in the local church. Um, so first let's do that, and then I'll read the paragraph. Um, so Christ's apostles are the universal overseers of the church, And through their witness, it's foundation. So Christ calls the apostles. We have multiple passages of scripture that tell us the authority and work of the ascended Christ. Christ is now ascended at the right hand of the Father, is carried through these witnesses and still rule Christ's church through what? Not through the Pope, through the inspired writings, the New Testament, through scripture. The Holy Spirit is present to apply that word to the end of the age. 
So Christ, through the apostles' teaching, inspired by the Spirit of God, has given us the Word of God, which defines everything with, within the, the universal church or the local church. It, it, it gives us definition. It gives us leadership. It gives uh, gifts to the church. And so through the apostles' teaching, local overseers are appointed in the local churches, and we'll look at this in later paragraphs. These leaders who are variously called elders, pastors, overseers, they exercise, please hear this, only a local and fallible authority in the particular church where they are at. In those churches, however, they do exercise Christ's authority and rule over the church only by what has been given to them and prescribed in his word. So this disconnects, denounces what the Roman Catholic Church was built upon as far as where authority lies. So Sam Waldron wrote this, and I think it's helpful. Many of those who hold staunchly to the 1689 confession doubt the value of its uh, dogmatism regarding the Pope being the Antichrist. Him being one of the writer of this, he, he is among these people. This is one of the statements which would probably be deleted in a revision of the confession. Such a deletion deletion must, however, be made not because of any weakening of our conviction about the apostate condition of the Church of Rome or the wicked and heretical character of the claims of the Pope, but solely based on exegetical conviction that the statement of the confession is false or without adequate basis." A lot of words there, but basically we would see where the Roman Catholic Church has gone outside the bounds of Scripture, teaching wrongly, and still say that is right. But the links in which the 1689 specifically hones in on the Pope being the Antichrist, that's where there's a little bit of distance being made. Um, but it's good for us to do a little, a little thinking about the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 2, 18 through 22. Um, many Antichrists have come, and they're marked by false teaching, heresy, denying the person and work of Christ in Scripture. Gospel truths are being distorted. The idea of deception is paramount, paramount and persecution of God's people. All of those are marks of lowercase a Antichrist. We see that all throughout Scripture. And so there may be a case to be made that what they're referring to is this wrong teaching that is leading many astray. That is a form of Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist. Some would just make an exegetical argument about the way that they're saying the Pope is the Antichrist and the reference to 2 Thessalonians there, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 9. So that's further study for you all to dig in if you want to really dive deep into that. Uh, but in conclusion, I know we've covered a lot of different, a lot of ground this morning, but I told uh, everyone that I would try to finish in a timely manner, and I've already gone over. So in conclusion, the church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church, purchased it with his blood. You've got some blanks there. Intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, 
and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. The church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. I pray that our love for the church would grow. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grand plan of redemption and gathering a people to yourself with Christ as the head and we who are purchased by his blood, the body. We give you all praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.